Welcome to Professional Planner's new Ethics and Professionalism podcast series. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and editor of Professional Planner magazine. In this new series, we will engage an ethics expert and a practitioner to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a culmination of factors, including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations, with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's new Code of Ethics. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Alan Gray, the Contrarian Investment Manager. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Go to alangray.com.au to find out more. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Good morning, Mike. Um, look, I, I'm actually going to read out a, a short bio for each because uh, I think it's quite relevant. So Dr. Dean Sanders, OAM, is the Ethics and Professionalism Leader for the, for the Deloitte Governance Regulation and Conduct Group. Before joining Deloitte, he was the inaugural CEO of FASIA, developing the blueprint for the professional standards and ethics regime in financial advice. We'll ask him a little bit about that today, uh, of course. Prior to that, he was the head of Australia's Professional Standards Authority, responsible for the oversight of inaugurals uh, of uh, Australia's uh, regulated professional communities. Dean is also an Indigenous leader, a Waromi man, and leads the Indigenous strategy and truth and reconciliation plan for Deloitte. He has a doctorate in the field of professions and consumer trust and, and was awarded an Order of Australia Medal in 2017 for services to these fields. Michael Carmody is a CFP and the founder and director of Viva Wealth based in Western Australia's, um, the suburb in Western Australia of Applecross in Perth. Michael came to financial planning following a career change from uh, the sport and recreation industry after starting out uh, at a bank and moving uh, to a much larger financial advice firm where he became a director and partner. Michael started, started his own practice in partnership with his wife, Vanessa. Dean, a uh, little over a year and a half since you left FASIA as the inaugural CEO, what have you been, what have you been up to? Well, a great deal, I've got to say, Matt. It's um, it's a very exciting time to be, you know, part of some larger conversations across government and business about how we think about the role of business in Australia. Um, this is not specifically financial services. I don't think anybody listening to the podcast will have any doubt about the amount of um, uh, challenge and uh, both economic but also social in relation to what's happening in a business in Australia. And so I spend most of my time in those types of conversations, working with clients, um, large and small, I have to say, to progress a conversation about what it means to be ethical in business, what it means to be playing a role in business that actually moves society forward and participates. Financial services is such an enormous opportunity. I mean, people do ask me occasionally why I still talk about and become involved in financial advice. And I'll say it up front because I think it hopefully it, it frames the conversation that, that Mike and I might have too, is that the reason that I, I, I'm still focused and still excited about financial advice is I, is I do believe it is literally one of the most extraordinary professions and professional communities that we have in Australia. The, the, the power, the strength of the relationship, 
the opportunity to do good is so profound, so extraordinary, that we need to get it right. So I keep coming back to it because it's a space that is so, has such richness in terms of how we can affect the outcomes for Australians. And I think it's such an area that we really do need to focus on getting right. We need to focus on, and that doesn't mean necessarily changing everything, by the way. I'm not here to say everything's wrong, therefore we need to fix it to make it right. It's more the idea of how do we build that to take it forward? How do we, how do we move forward in these conversations rather than spend a lot of time agonising, frankly, over what is um, and also a lot of time doing a lot of history, soul-seeking or, in, in the language of financial services, remediation, hmm. um, move you, to the issue. The you, um, you already mentioned that it's a profession. Do you think that's perhaps a little, um, you know, optimistic uh, or are you just projecting forward? I'm projecting. There's, yeah. there's, there is no question. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to be on record to say that, that despite all the best intentions and all of the best energies, um, we have a lot to do. Yeah. Um, and, on, and, I mean, but it's not a simple question. And I, I know this is, this is a, a classic Dean response, but the idea of what a profession is is not simply some sort of elemental structure. You don't just tick boxes and suddenly you're a profession. There's a whole lot of complex componentry in it. And that was my, 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 my PhD work was on that particular question of if we've got all these things, why isn't there a profession? Mm. Well, it turns out that's because it's actually very complex. Um, it's not just about having things. It's about the way we think. It's about the way we engage with issues. It's the way we engage with each other, the way we engage with clients. These are all quite complex, layered issues. The way we're structured in terms of financial services, mm. the way people are remunerated. So it's a complex question. I'll, 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 I'll say it that way. Mm. So getting all of those pieces right is actually very tough, which is why we're not yet there. Mm but we are absolutely on that particular journey. Well, I hope we draw out some of that in the conversation. But, Michael, um, I mean, look, I talk to advisors uh, almost every day and and uh, we've engaged advisors on our podcast series, but it, uh, it must feel a little bit like uh, you're in the eye of the storm at the moment uh, in some days um, in relation to uh, some of the ethics requirements that still seem to be formulated. Uh, what's your view from where you sit uh, over in WA uh, in relation to yeah, responsibilities? Um, I think, you know, your analogy of the eye of the storm is certainly, you know, how we're feeling at the moment. Um, and there's, there's lots of dialogue uh, between planners and advisors at the moment in relation to the requirements. Um, Dean, I think you hit the nail on the head, the power of our relationship with our and consumer, our clients, is, is unbelievable. Um, and, you know, the, the difference we can make, and, and I think you're right, Dean, it's, it's not that we have uh, things to fix, but we need to make it better. Um, and I think that's the direction that we're certainly taking. Um, me personally, I, I certainly feel we're making positive moves towards being able to call ourselves professionals. Uh, in reality, we are only 30 or 40 years old, um, so it is a, a very young profession and, you know, behaviour, I think, is some of the key stuff that we, we need to get right. Um, it's not that there's been, you know, heaps of people doing stuff wrong in the past, but we certainly need to try to reduce and minimise uh, that poor behaviour that's been in the, in the past. And, and I think we do have a great opportunity and, and for those of us who are out there working hard to, to do the right thing, um, I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for us to, to get it right and really make a difference um, with people uh, around uh, a content area that having been in education before, unfortunately, is not um, taught explicitly um, in our education system at all. And I think that's something 
as regulators and, and as educators is something really we could work towards trying to squeeze in at some point um, into the into the curriculum. Yeah. And Dina, I want to ask you to reflect a little bit on the FASIA experience and, and maybe your sense of where um, where we're heading in relation to um, some of the, the code of ethics, you know, and, and, and how that's going to play out. But before I do, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the structures that we've, the industry has found itself in. Um, to Michael's point, it's, you know, you just started off talking about the relationship with the advisor and the client is, is key, um, you know, and, but no matter how ethical an advisor is uh, in relation to that relationship, it seems to me that, that, that advisors are surrounded by, um, you know, and have in the past been surrounded by um, problematic structures um, you may disagree or, or, or agree, but I just wanted to, to draw that out of you a little bit and talk about ethics within perhaps uh, conflicted structures, your view on that. Well, I'd, I'd say that um, if we think about it from an ethics perspective, then there's no such thing as, um, as a inherently evil structure. Um, there is, though, those, you know, all types of structures give rise to different sorts of challenges. Um, it's certainly the case. It's not difficult to imagine that the industry might have structured itself in such a way that it allowed ethical engagements to arise, um, that it allowed the positive sort of aspects of business to magnify through to the end client. That's possible. I think it's also wholly reasonable to accept that, that hasn't been what's happened. Um, that business is naturally drawn towards business and naturally drawn towards things like revenue and remuneration and systems like that. That is the model of business. And certainly we, but this is a, what, I, what I'm really eager to have a conversation about is that that doesn't make it the advisor's fault. And I think we've made, we've made errors in this particular process of saying that somehow the, you know, the unethical actions or, or actions that affect consumers are somehow the fault of an individual when in fact the entire systems and structures behind it have layered up these levels of complexity that actually make it very difficult to act as an ethical agent mm. in the conversation. But, but I believe in people. And I think that, that if we were to construct systems that allow individuals to act ethically, then we can actually transform business. My interest is in transforming business, which flows through to the role of professionals that might play at the front end of customers. So again, you're never going to get a straight answer out of me saying the structures are, are evil or structures are wrong. Um, structures give rise to different conflicts. Structures give rise to different incentives. Mm. Those things absolutely can lead to evil outcome or inappropriate intentions and outcomes. Um, but I, I believe that people themselves should focus on issues of accountability and ethical obligation. Mm. If we had that conversation, for instance, at the level of bank executives or financial services executives, I think we'd be in a very different set of circumstances mm. now. Yeah, and I hope some of those views, I mean, I don't need or I don't want to get you to say things um, you know, you, you know, to, to say things that may make a headline or, or, or to, you know, put you in a position. But I think as we go through some of these scenarios, perhaps your views might become clear in relation to how Well, oh, there are certainly very scenarios. clear examples <laughs> that, that might give rise to more direct commentary. Um, but it seems to me that the construct of the Code of Ethics, um, well, this has made, been made clear by Glenfield and um, you know, and those who have been involved with the Code of Ethics is that it applies to the individual, the advisor, 
and not the business structures. So it seems to me that the Code of Ethics isn't addressing business structures, um, you know, at all, which if I'm reading what you're saying, that um, it's the business structures that really we should be addressed. You know. Well, I think what it does, and, and Mike, Mike sort of voiced a little bit of this when he talked about the eye of the storm, what it does is it puts all the pressure on the advisor. Yeah. Um, now, that, that, that is the intention of the law, though. Let's be clear. Yeah. Um, the law is not about licensees or financial services more mm. generally or corpora- corporations in Australia. Yeah. The law is about advisors. Um, the question of whether that, and it puts enormous power in the hands of advisors, by the way, and people do underestimate that. We haven't yet got to the conversation about what this means for Mike and his cohort in terms of the power they can then exert on behalf of the client back up the engines. I want to see that conversation begin to emerge too. And when you hold the strings and you say to, say to licensees and product manufacturers, your product is crap, I'm no longer prepared to put this in front of my client, that's a different level of power and conversation than we've ever had. Um, but you're right. You know, the law is structured so that it puts all of that pressure and all of that obligation on the advisor and expects it to somehow magically happen. I do think that's a flaw. That's a fundamental flaw in the approach to the law. It's one of the reasons why I think we will struggle um, to achieve the outcomes we want to get here. Michael, are you feeling the pressure? Yeah, certainly, Matt. Um, you know, and, and Dean, I think you made some some great comments there. You know, I think it will empower the individual. And I really like your comment. You know, I too believe in people. And I think, uh, you know, that that's, that's where the advisor makes a difference in, in being able to make their decision um, that, that is in the best interest of the client. Um, the challenges we have is that if we're licensed through... Uh, Someone who, who has some restrictions, uh, it means that we've got less uh, choices that we can, can use that we know are right. So I suppose for me, fortunately, I've been in the, you know, the IFA space for, for some time and, and I haven't felt that restriction, but I certainly feel for some of my colleagues who are, who are licensed through a very restricted approved product list and, and it really does make things very difficult for them. Um, so yeah, I think as individuals we are we are feeling the, the pressure and the pain. Um, but but I do feel that there's a sense uh, of it will be better once we get through this, and, and it, it certainly will make for a, a better landscape both for the consumer and also for the advisor uh, once we've once we've scaled this hurdle that's in front of us. Yeah, and it. I mean, advisors, to be able to say you that is a crap product or that deal's not quite right, they need the information, you know, in front of them to do that. So I guess the whole ecosystem in a way has to kind of work together to provide that information to the advisor but the right information. And I suppose uh, to date perhaps some of that information has been a little bit, a little bit skewed by the interests of, of those bigger businesses. Um, you mentioned, Dean... Um, that you don't, sorry to pull you up on this, but you don't think it's going to work, you know, in the form that it is? No, I don't. Yeah. Let me be really clear. Yeah. I don't. Okay. <laughs> um, mainly because um, of, a, of an ideological um, rift I have with the idea that, that you regulate for professions. Um, professions are a construction of the community. Um, they are a relationship that individuals connect with each other. Um, you can, can you can regulate to create an environment for a profession, um, but it's a very subtle line between then regulating for a profession um, because what it leads to in the language of ethics and professions is it, le- it leads to rules and rule transacting. We already see that in the dialogue around the code of ethics. 
It leads to a whole high-level heated anxiety and debate around what precisely this means. That's not professions. You know, if, if we have to transact around rules or understand rules or be driven by rules, that's not what professions and ethics are, are really about. They're the idea of how do we negotiate this with each other. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fond of law that regulates. And I, I mean, without wanting to, to get myself in any particular trouble, um, that's one of the reasons why I was very interested in the framework around the foreseeable outcomes. How do we build a framework that might facilitate a profession? Um, how do we put the right ingredients and structures in place that can allow the profession to then emerge from that? But to suggest it's going to come because the law says it will is actually flawed thinking. Mm. But you have to start somewhere, I presume. Well, normally professions begin with a with a collective commitment yeah. of the participants, not from a regulator or a lawmaker. Yeah. They begin. They begin. And frankly, I mean, Mike made the point that it's a thirty or forty year old um, uh, evolution, and I think that's really important to capture here. That you know, I remember in my time in the FPA, I, I was deeply proud of the fact that that those conversations began with a bunch of like-minded, committed individuals getting together in a coffee shop yeah. or the then, the then equivalent in the 80s, um, probably a bar, <laughs> and saying, how do, we, how do we get together on this? How do we connect and collect, collectivise on this? That's how professions are born. Yeah. Um, they're not born because the government demands one or regulates for one or stipulates that there is one. Mm. Um, it's, that doesn't say that those two things are incompatible. It's just that the way you frame up the law mm. has to be one that facilitates it. So m maybe to get myself in direct trouble, I'll say, for instance, that because it's going to lead into the code of ethics conversation you want to have, that if you take the view that, that, that professions are born from a collective commitment, then the way you describe codes of ethics should then be collective, meaning they should involve consultation. They should involve the voice of the participants. Mm. They should involve the voice of community. Mm. Um, they should be a conversation we have with each other about what this stuff means. Mm. Dictate in any particular form is not a recipe for a profession. Yeah. Um, I mean, how have you seen it form from, from your perspective? Um, kind of Look, some, some very interesting comments there from Dean. Um, and, you know, I, I like that thought that, you know, it does come from the collective and, and the commitment from the collective. Um, and Matt, yeah, I, I agree that perhaps um, advisors had an opportunity to collaborate and uh, and didn't take that and perhaps now are, are complaining or are, are saying that things aren't how they should be um, because perhaps we feel as though we're being forced to do some things. So perhaps we do have to do a little bit of self-reflection, which I think is pretty important in business and as a person and certainly as a professional. So maybe we do need to do some self-reflection there to, to say, well, why, why didn't we uh, take that opportunity? And perhaps we should try to force that opportunity to happen again um, so that we, we can have our say um, to, to be able to end up with the, the outcome that we want. Um, now, the reason that I've been having conversations outside of financial services is because they haven't been having them inside financial services. Um, and that's a real anxiety. The, the focus has so far been this was this has been a constant annoyance to me. I want, I want to be clear: it's a, a level, it's, it's at the level of frustration that the only conversation in town has been issues of education. That's the easiest part of the problem to solve. Mm -hmm. That's what everybody's been talking about for eighteen months. It's baffling to me, truly baffling. Um, and I challenge the associations on that too. Mm -hmm. 
um, because the code of ethics was and always will be the single biggest implementation challenge in this sector. Yeah. And I said that when I was in the role two years ago. Yeah. Um, so I can't believe that it's taken this long for people to suddenly wake up. And the licensee community, I, I challenge them too the, to the fact that that their job in this, the role of a licensee in this is to facilitate those ethical outcomes for advisors. Mm. They're not outside the conversation. It might not be their direct duty under law, but their duty under law is to support their advisors or more importantly perhaps in a legal sense to not put the advisor in a position where they are required to act unethically mm -hmm. um, in order to facilitate or meet their obligations to their licensee. That's a, that's a powerful set of questions that every licensee should have been asking themselves a long time before now. Is this yet another example of the industry needing to be pushed, waiting and waiting and waiting until they absolutely need to do something and then finally finally doing something? And it, I mean, I, I, I hear and understand your frustration. I, I, I see it as well. Is that yet another example of how far away we are from being a profession when we can't rally ourselves and, you know, our own community to be able to, to meet the standards we know we need to meet until the regulator pushes us. I'd, I'd probably position it slightly differently to say that there are a number of, um, there are many licensees who still see this as an advisor problem, um, who still think this is something for the advisors to, to, to deal with and sort out. Yeah. Um, that's a small group. I, I should say not, not anybody that for obvious reasons that I'm working with, but I do hear that voice coming back to us. Um, but there are many others who are saying we really want to do this. We just can't, we cannot get breathing space at the moment when we have enforcement actions rolling at us um, on a weekly basis. We have reports rolling out that change our business model and require us to do remediation programs in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue of prioritisation. And also, to be fair, I don't think the sector, and again, a challenge to the associations and other participants, has been clear about the priority of obligations here. There's been a whole lot of let's wait and see. Let's wait and see what code monitoring would happen. I can tell you right now, I, I, I knew code monitoring would never happen. Um, that, was, that, was, that was never going to get off the ground. Mm. Um, Hayne said it wasn't going to happen. That's right. That's right. So, so I cannot be the only one <laughs> who read the Royal Commission report. Um, so I don't know why we spent so much time waiting around to see what would happen in that space and see how that would interpret the code. Never going to happen. Mm. I also, to be really blunt, am less concerned about foreseers' um, guidance documentation um, and, frankly, anybody's opinion on the guidance documentation, foreseers or otherwise, because, you know, what matters is what's in the law. What matters is how that's engaged in the law. So we've been sitting around waiting for interpretations to fall from heaven without, because we refuse to engage in those interpretations ourselves. Professions engage in that conversation themselves. Mm. Um, and I think that's a challenge. So we've all been waiting, but we've been led, we've been led that way. Mm. Uh, we've been led that way because that's our practice in financial services. Mm. Our practice in financial services since the introduction of Corporations Act has been to wait for ASIC to tell us mm. what further requirements mm. are, what the rules and details are, rather than engage in what is an ethical conversation, mm. a consideration of what does this mean for us and how do we do it better. Mm. That question is often asked, and I want to give credit to that, it's often asked, but then it's swamped by a whole lot of other immediate urgencies and priorities. Mm. And Michael, have you come to terms with the, the code of ethics and do you feel like it's changed anything in the way in which you, um, you know, um, interact with your clients? Um, yeah, Matt, I think we're still coming to terms with the, the code of ethics, as, as Dean's mentioned. Um, and, and, you know, the, the point that, you know, these ethical conversations, you know, should be, should be had you know, by the people completely agree. So, um, you know, uh, I think we're still coming to terms with, with what it is. I'm not sure we completely 
know how we're going to implement it. Dean, with what you said around education, I completely agree. That's that's the easiest part to solve. The the hardest thing to make sure that we're doing is is implementing the day to day uh, practices that we we should be putting in place when working with the consumers that we work with. Um, and and that I think is perhaps something that that I'm anxious about and uh, certainly not finding that we're getting any leadership, but also what I'm hearing as well today is, well, hang on, maybe we don't need to wait for the leadership, maybe we need to create the leadership and perhaps as a uh, collective, as advisors, we've maybe let ourselves down in, in not taking that opportunity earlier or perhaps perhaps it is it is happening. And I think one of the things the associations could do for us is try to create the opportunity for that collective voice to come together. Because I think for me, particularly as a sole practitioner, sometimes it's hard to get the opportunity to have that collective voice. Um, perhaps licensees could also be looking to provide that opportunity to get advisors around and, and talking about these issues to, to take away some of that anxiety um, and, and to put us in a, in a better mindset. Um, because there certainly is a lot of stuff that, that's coming at us, um, you know, from the consumer, there's the challenges in business, um, and then obviously we've got these, these education challenges as well. So perhaps as a community, we'll say we haven't got time, but I think what we need to do is prioritise what's most important, um, you know, and, and if the licensees think that this is not their problem, well, uh, they haven't got much of a business if there's no one out there to licence at the end of the day. Mm. We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenario to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Alan Gray take a contrarian investment approach, apply it consistently and invest for the long term. After all, you can't invest the same way as everyone else and expect a different result. Find out more at alangray.com.au. Okay, the first one's called Client Hiding Assets. A uh, client called about aged care and described their situation to me and the asset level they quoted to me over the phone seemed too high um, uh, to me for them to be in receipt of the full age pension. When I pushed um, her on it, it's, um, she explained that there was an investment property owned forever um, but was un- unoccupied uh, that made up part of their total assets. I asked if Centrelink knew about the asset and she told me they should. However, I was not satisfied satisfied if they did. In light of the contentious, um, sorry, in light of the continuous disclosure requirements to Centrelink, what's the appropriate action of advice here, Michael? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, and I think these sorts of scenarios, you know, because they've come from, from real advisors, they, they are real. Um, and I'm sure that we've probably all come across something like this before. For me, um, the action here is that, without a doubt, Centrelink needs to know about this property. Um, and so as, the, as an advisor, whether this client's an existing client or a, a brand new client, 
Um, we, we just can't mislead Centrelink uh, with assets or, or income. Um, you know, under the under the code of ethics, you know, standard eight says that we we need to keep records. So once we've been told something, we can't be untold that. Um, our obligation is to make sure we keep a record of that conversation. Um, and if we if we think about the the long term and and the broader effects for the client as well, I mean, if if the client chooses not to disclose and later on down the track it's found out and they're forced to repay money, yeah, that has a broader effect for the client and for the family. So when it all comes down to it, uh, in in my opinion, this client definitely needs to uh, be disclosing that uh, that asset to client. It's, it's probably a lose-lose situation, um, you know, that the client's going to feel as though they're being forced to do something. You're feeling as though you're having to, um, in some ways, tell them the client because if a, if a client continues to not tell Centrelink, we're then also put into the position under Standard 12 to, uh, to uphold the profession um, that, that we're actually, you know, informing Centrelink and, and to a way you know, dobbing on them. So um, I think there's a, a lot at play here um, and one for me that, in my opinion, would be pretty clear that we need to we need to be confident and uh, make sure that the client has actually informed Centrelink of this, of this asset. Mm, pretty clear and, um, and uh, concise outcome there for the or action from the advisor. What about the ethics expert? You, so, so a quick... A quick sort of trapes through the sort of the language of ethics, um, if you think about the idea that, that ethics really, and there are many framings of ethics, many theories of ethics, you'll be familiar with things like deontological and teleological and the idea of consequentialism, all that sort of good, juicy ethics stuff. I think you've had Peter Singer and others on the, on the process before, program before. Um, so leaving that aside, um, I'd say... Um, that I tend to boil it down into two things. The simple Dean version of, of the way we think about ethics is, is, is in the language of consideration and consequence. So how do you think about something, which is the consideration piece, and what is the consequence of that consideration? So if you, if you take that idea, this particular scenario is what might you use, what tools might you use to think about this particular problem? Now, in the, interests of, in the financial advice space, we obviously have the code of ethics, and that's, that's a tool, that's a useful tool to think about these things. So Mark's right to sort of link that question about the code of ethics. But the code of ethics, an important point about the code of ethics, all codes of ethics, and for CIA have emphasised this publicly, is that standards aren't discrete and they shouldn't be discrete in singularity. They are combinative. How do they, how do they work together? So the first point is even on the issue of the values. So the idea that, so what, what values might inform our thinking, what, what, how, how they might affect our consideration here. So I mean, on the simple issue of the, of the values, of which there are five, um, honesty, fairness and diligence come to sort of mind immediately as three that are relevant to this particular conversation. So if you, are, if you are to act honestly, if you are to be fair, and fairness is in fairness in all the circumstances, including fairness not just to this client but to the public duties that you owe, and then diligence in terms of what laws and others you should know about, it pretty much blocks you even at the point of value. You don't even dig down into the issue of, um, of the standards. But if you did, I would suggest to Mike that... Um, that it's very useful to reference Standard 8, but I've, I think there's at least four others <laughs> that, I'd, uh, that I'd add into the conversation. So, I, and, and I can't get past Standard 1 on almost any particular challenge that we see in these <laughs> issues. 
standard one, of course, being the one that asks you to take into account all applicable laws. Um, that is including the, the laws in relation to income tax and Centrelink pension systems, et cetera, all those obligations that clients have and you have. We haven't um, even got to standard three in our that, that, Exactly. And, and, and standard three is, is uh, I think, by the way, I'll put on record one of the least interesting standards in the entire deck. <laughs> um, st- so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out my cards are standard one, six, nine and 12 <laughs> um, in terms of the barriers that we have here. I mean, standard one obviously challenges us to think about those duties we have to other laws. Um, six talks about the idea of the issue of how you affect other clients. Um, so the code is a useful tool. I just want to be, be clear that the, the, the way it's constructed is intended to be a tool for consideration, mm. not a tool for rulemaking, a tool for how do you think about the problem. And when you use it that way, um, and that example, which I appreciate is a, not an uncommon one, means that at least three of the values are activated and at least five of the standards. Mm. Um, that pretty much should tell you um, we're in trouble if we seek to ignore those obligations. Yeah. Uh, and because you brought it up, um, you know, reading the the code in its, its entirety, and that's a, a line that um, Stephen Glenfield has has rolled out in front of the parliamentary committee, in front of um, you know the many public appearances uh, that that he's done. Do you believe that is that um, the right? I mean, it has to be read in its entirety, right? However, you know, if you're if 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 you're looking at one aspect of of the code or one particular standard um, that appears to conflict with other standards within the code, is it okay to say, um, well, it has to be read in its entirety in order to to I guess get well, through? Well, I, I don't think I don't. I, I mean, I'll be you know I'll be um, no doubt in trouble, but but I would suggest to you that they should, it's not an excuse. It shouldn't be used as an excuse. I don't really understand the code, therefore you should read it in totality, mm. is, not the, is not the appropriate position. I think instead, though, the reality is a code is indeed to, re, to be read in whole. Mm. Um, but the, what matters about that is the consideration you apply to it. So it's inevitable, or often inevitable, that when you have rules, which is the way the standards tend to be written and tend to now be read and interpreted by the marketplace, rules will often conflict with each other. Yeah. Um, so the question is, what do you do when you think about that? How do you consider those conflicts? Now, one of the things that, that I talk about with clients at the moment is the idea of often in a context of an ethical dialogue, all you can really give yourself is evidence of your consideration. In the language of law, we might call that contestability. Mm. So that when you end up in court, should you end up in court, you can show the court your thinking. Mm. If you end up in court and say, I didn't think about it at all, frankly ignored that whole damn thing, it was impossible and it was difficult to do, that is probably not a decent defence. Mm. Um, you know, what you instead would say is this is how I thought about that problem. Mm. This, this is the consideration I gave to that issue and this is the outcome I reached. Mm. That, that's, that's, that's an ethical way of framing the challenge. And where there are conflicts, how did I resolve them? Yeah. Um, let me ask it in a more direct way uh, and all I have is, is the standards to rely on in order to, to understand, you know, the, the structure of, of, of the, this ethical discussion. But... You know, standard three says that there can't be any conflicts. Is it okay to be able to say, well, it has to be read in totality in order for that particular standard to make sense? Well, I, I think I think what's being asked of us with that answer mm. given by Fasia is that you may indeed be in conflict, but you should look at the entire code. And I know this sounds like I'm repeating what he's saying, but it's not. What I'm suggesting is that is that when you think about, well, how do we engage with products, how do we engage with advice? If I think about the idea of what's fair for the client, I appreciate well, you've got another another example that might even go to it more directly. Mm. Um, 
that it is the idea that it's not simply an easy way to say read the entire code. It is more the proper answer, um, the proper way of thinking about it more accurately is to consider how in meeting my obligations to my client have I considered all of those things together. And you may find yourself, and you probably will find yourself, in breach of standard three in many instances. Is that the right thing to do for this client? And sometimes it may well be, in which case you then have to justify that to yourself yep. in your considerations and, may, and justify it in your documentation, obviously, because it's now become law. Um, so I think it's, I think it's entirely possible. I, I expect to see circumstances mm. where advisors advertently breach standard three mm. but have, very good, have had very good reasoning and justification to do so. Yeah. Aside from a little bit of different wording, I feel like there's a, a little bit of a consensus here between uh, Dean Sanders and uh, and uh, Sassiers currently. Well, I, I, I hope I'm thinking about it from a different perspective yeah. in that, uh, and maybe I'm not because I appreciate they've also been informed by Simon in his role on the board mm. that, that, that these things are um, these things are in totality. I, I don't want it to, I'm not attempting to be obfuscatory. In fact, I'm, I'm trying to be clear, which is not always easy from an ethical perspective. Um I do think you can, as, I mean, to be really direct, I do think you can indeed um, be in breach of standard, what appears to be the writing in standard three, mm. if you have reason and have you evidenced mm. how that in fact is in the interests of the client. Um, I think that's entirely possible. Mm. Um, we haven't seen the examples play out, but I expect to see them. Yeah, great. Um, look, two more scenarios. These two seem to be more situational in relation to um, business structures. And and this next one, I I. I think is, is is really interesting. So interested in uh, both your your views on this one. And we'll go to Michael first. Uh, uh, a self license. It's called uh, recommending own product. A self licensed firm has built its own investment solution. The firm has an independent investment committee, a rigorous process, have negotiated significant fee savings and deliver excellent outcome for clients. The firm receives a product margin for its solution, which is disclosed to clients and meets all the requirements of the legislation and ASIC. Um, does an employed advisor who does not um, receive any benefit from the investment solution have a conflict of interest in recommending the firm's investment solution where they believe and can justify it is in the client's best interests? Um, there may be an ethical dilemma if there is a cheaper product available, even if many other features offer um, benefits, benefits that are superior. And this is the kicker for me. Further, does an advisor who is also a shareholder slash director of the firm have a conflict of interest. FASIA standard three may be, may, may be particularly relevant there. Uh, Michael, yeah. have a go at that one. An interesting scenario again, Matt. Not uncommon probably, I imagine. Uh, yeah, perhaps not uncommon. I mean, my thoughts went globally. Um, again, you know, we're not trying to say whether this is legal but whether it is right. Um, and probably more importantly, the perception um, to the end consumer as to whether it's right, I think is really where my thoughts went. So, you know, when I when I thought about this and, and advice business then, you know, extrapolating their, their offering to have an investment solution, I'd like to know why they, they thought they could do that. Um, did they think that they could, you know, provide a better solution than others in the market? Was it that they wanted to grab a, a greater portion of the, the client's wallet um, trying to capture more, more revenue and, and ultimately more, more profit. Um, I do believe that the public perception of, of a vertical integration or a, a structure such as you're describing is probably not a very positive one. I, I don't believe that the average consumer uh, would see that as a necessarily a good thing. 
And I think that's probably the important thing that I, I come back to. Um, so I'm not convinced that whilst under a capitalist world, you know, there's nothing stopping us from being involved in both sides of that equation. Um, and we spoke about it in the first part of this discussion. So I, I believe that perhaps um, one of the things we need to do is get away from that. And I think you know, the big institutions, the banks, et cetera, seem to be moving away from that wealth management space um, and, and sticking to their, their knitting, um, lending and, and banking products. And, and perhaps that is going to be one of the, the key things that in fact changes um, for us to, to be able to move forward. Because whether there is a conflict of interest, interest or whether there's just in fact a perceived conflict of interest, um, I think that's the important thing. And my analogy here would be if I went to see a doctor and they pre prescribed me a certain medication um, but, and then I found out that the doctor has a business interest in that medication, even though it may be better or cheaper, my gut feeling is that I'd, I'd find that a challenging decision on, on why the doctor refers every one of their clients to take on that medication. Um, so if you had to push me to say, is, does the employed advisor have a conflict? Um, I'd, I'd be leaning more towards the fact that perhaps there is no conflict um, by, for the employed advisor because they're not benefiting in any way by, um, by the, the business having that investment solution. On the other hand, the, uh, the shareholder uh, in, in both the business and the investment solution, uh, there's definitely a conflict there in, in my opinion. Um, you know, and, and I think we've got to be careful that we don't just as advisors look at the cost. Um, I think what we need to try to be doing is we, we need to try and match uh, what the client needs with what the product is providing. And that may mean that they, in fact, uh, are happy to, to have something that costs a little bit more because of the features. And an example might be that, you know, I enjoy four-wheel driving and I drive a Toyota. I don't drive, you know, a, a cheaper four-wheel drive model because I want to I make sure that when I need the product to work, that it, it is going to work. Um, and I, I think we need to be careful as we move through these changes as a as a as a professional body to make sure that we're we're really trying to to educate um, and i think the big thing that i'm finding uh and we you guys spoke about it before is we need to be able to justify and, and prove why we have made decisions and i think that's perhaps one of the things that's going to change uh, most for a practicing advisor is that we really whilst previously we might have thought about things to justify why something's not a conflict or, or why it's in the best interest, but we really need to have evidence of that. And I think that's something that is going to be part of the challenge in the, in the coming uh, time for advisors to make sure we've got some evidence as to what we've done and, and how that's ultimately met the five values and the 12 standards. Thanks, Michael. Dean? Yeah, look, I mean, Mike raised some great, um, some great elements there and it, it actually... Um, it actually also opens up this conversation around in the particular standards and values of the FASIA code, because, again, that's a helpful way of thinking about this. There are many questions that arise from here, and Mike spoke to the more general perspective on issues of conflict. Um, but thinking about the, through the FASIA code lens, I'd sort of... I think it's important to differentiate um, the nature of employment here, that that is an important part of the consideration, that, um, you know, the status of employment doesn't alter the obligations 
as you know, under the, under the law, you are a relevant provider no matter what the circumstance, employed or independent. But it does clarify the conflicts a little in terms of what... And, and that clarification actually probably creates more work, to Mike's point, that you have to do more things. It doesn't mean that anything changes, but you have to do more things to show your consideration. I, I like the, the angle that Mike took on the issue of, um, of the employed advisor because it made me think about the trustworthiness element of the values too, that the trustworthiness, which is the first element of values, um, talks about the idea that people may well expect if they're involved in a conversation with an employed advisor from a particular licensee that they're going to get the products of that licensee. So, in fact, your, your trustworthiness, your role as an advisor is about how you position the, the products of your employer. That's intentional. And that, in fact, might be to do otherwise can, in fact, erode the trustworthiness. You know, that's why you're employed in a circumstance. The clients come through your door wearing that brand looking for that type of product from that particular provider. So there is a, you know, I want to be clear that, that this isn't always about IFAs. It's actually also about how, what clients and customers expect of, of the particular shop they're shopping in. So trustworthiness is important. But also, that, that again, there's the, there's the fairness, honesty, diligence, diligence questions in relation to the values and the role you have. But so, so starting with the values, I can see at least four that, 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 that I would want to give consideration to in the context of this. But, but picking up on the standards, because Mike sort of um, you know, mentioned some detail, it's worthwhile reflecting that the standard one, again, I, I can never get past standard one in almost any ethical dilemma because it's, it's almost impossible to take into account all laws. Um, but I would say that, that, for instance, in this scenario where you have 961B corporations, the best interest duty and in the, in the safe harbour provisions there, how does that work in the context of the best interest duties you have in this particular scenario and are they in conflict? Leave aside the issues of revenue or remuneration. Are the best interests um, in conflict? Um, standard five, I'm, I'm drawn to standard five on this one too as Mike sort of talked about this idea that, that you need to understand, what, we need to understand what the client's the nature of the recommendations and how they affect the client and how they are free from bias. So, the, so, the, so the, the effort here for an employed advisor is to demonstrate to the client that the advice is free from bias. Um, that's really challenging when you are wearing the shirt and brand and of, of the shop you're selling products for. So you, either ha- you, ha- you have to find a way to manage that conversation. Look, I know I'm selling you Toyotas in the case that, um, that was referenced because for these reasons. That's why I work here. It's why this product works for you. Um, you still do have a standard seven problem because the principal is in receipt of benefits here. You know, the, the principal is clearly receiving some benefit. Now, that's not to say it's, again, irresolvable, mm. merely that you have to give consideration to how is that dealt with mm. through our documentation, through the informed consent of the client. Well, my, yeah, and to that point, my reading of that is that uh, as a director, they're probably building equity or, you know, with... Well, the part two of the question, you're right, where, where this person might be receiving some sort of shareholder benefit. Yeah. The part two one gives rise to other challenges, in particular standard three, as you've referenced. Um, and all those things are relevant. All of those things, and I think I think the pressure on the IFA in the scenario is is harder, certainly to justify how they've arrived at this conclusion, how this remains to be in the best interest of the client. Um, and, to, to, and to Mike's correct point, you've got to show that consideration. Mm. You know, why is this relevant? Um, I also want to give, I also want to push back a little bit too on the idea of the employed advisor thing because as a professional in that context, it is, it is simply inadequate or insufficient more accurately for an employed advisor to say, well, because this is what we do here. Um, these are the products I'm, I'm offered to sell. You actually have, I think, the ethical position is you have to sort of show that you have not been mis- misled by the principal. I've seen plenty of examples of misleading by principals. 
in terms of products that say one thing but ultimately do another. Um, so, so the employed advisor is, has a challenge here to show that I have really thought about the client um, and the information that's written on the paper is not my lived experience of the way this product actually works. Um, and there are hidden fees or hidden costs and hidden charges that might not be on the open disclosure. You as a professional have a duty to make sure that that is completely understood by you um, because that may well have an effect on the client, which is what I was getting to very much earlier, that empowering the advisor to push back on the product manufacturing system, to push back on their licensees to say, you know what, what you're asking me to put to my client is not what the truth of this particular product is. Mm. That's, yeah. that's, that's going to be an exciting future conversation. And, and I think from my reading of this, a lot of these product manufacturers actually do exist in the IFA world in that, uh, you know, with it, we've seen massive growth rates in, you know, MDA and, and SMA structures. You've got um, advice practices setting up investment committees and, you know, rigorous um, research around that. So, um, you know, I suppose the, the question is, does the research committee or, or, or the committee that they've set up Obviously, they they understand the product. Do they have that the you know the communication um, with the advisor, the frontline advisor, um, to be able to explain that product accurately? And and in theory, that they're closer to the product than they would have been if they were dealing with a, a you know within a large institution. Well, I think that that's true. But but ultimately, you know, referencing back to Peter Singer's sort of utilitarian sort of dialogue. You, you know, this, this idea of ethical distancing that happens, you know, that the more layers between you and the product manufacturing allows you to say, well, it's not my problem. Um, I, I would argue that, in fact, what the code requirements do is make everything your problem. You know, you, you're the one sitting in front of the client, it's all your problem. Mm. Um, so I, I would, in fact, suggest that, that I don't care whether the research committee is one step removed from you or ten steps removed from you, you still have duties to understand that product mm. and to perhaps do your own due diligence mm. um, to, to justify it. Do you have time, Michael, to do your own due diligence, mate? <laughs> <coughs> certainly, a, <coughs> excuse me, certainly a, a challenge, uh, Matt, um, you know, to, to be able to do that. And you know, as, we, as we sort of, you know, try to, try to individualise and, and make uh, our recommendations, you know, directly for the client, it, that means that we're working across a, a whole range of, of different providers, well, then that creates a challenge as well. And unfortunately, I suppose what that challenge presents is a higher fee uh, because there's <clears throat> less time working with people and more time <clears throat> justifying um, and, and understanding everything. Now, that may come across um, perhaps in a way that the listeners go, well, shouldn't you understand everything that you're, you're recommending? And absolutely, you, you should. Um, and I think perhaps what it creates for a business is that you really do need to understand um, the, the client that you're looking for, the niche that you're looking for, and, and you need to perhaps, if, if it's difficult to work across a whole range of different providers and, and options, then you need to be looking for those clients who have similar, similar characteristics or looking for similar things so that you can um, you know, perhaps work in that space uh, in a productive and, and, and profitable way mm. as opposed to perhaps um, accepting a whole range of people with a whole range of problems and, and not actually being able to, to uh, meet their requirements. And just if it's, if it's one small concession, I'm not suggesting you need to duplicate the work of the research committee. What you need to do as an advisor, I think, is satisfy yourself that, that their thinking is reasonable, that, that the evidence they're relying on is valid. 
Um, there are many, many instances, I remember them back in the margin lending conversations or fixed interest product conversations of the, of the early, you know, 2010s, et cetera, that this idea that simply something that's spewed through the fax machine that's from a research house must be true um, is um, even the fact that I'm using the words fax machine <laughs> tells you a little bit. But the fact that we must accept this as true I think is a dangerous proposition. You don't need to do the research yourself, but you need to understand the points of evidence that you can then explain to the client mm. about why, you, why, your, why your consideration mm. is that this product is truthful in its representation of its expectations. Yeah, but I think at the wash-up I actually think that um, there's a lot to think about uh, in that last scenario. And I, but I think at the wash-up I think... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's a bit of a sticky situation and, and, and a lot of these business structures are setting up and um, and from what I'm hearing, um, that's a difficult one to justify from a conflicts perspective. Uh, well, I think probably even without wanting to give the, give the, create more risk in the marketplace, I think it's also frankly challenging from a regulatory perspective. Yeah. Leave aside ethical. Yeah. Um, we understand that these issues are questions of efficiency. One of the things I, I want to be clear about is that on the best interest question, you know, we certainly hear organisations, a lot of them setting up things like MDAs and other structures. My, my ethical question to them is, well, in whose interest is that? Mm. Is that in the interest of the advisor and the efficiency, in the interest of the licensee and the pool of funds? Whose interest is that in? Um, and if we then charge exorbitant... Now, it may well be in the client's interest. Mm. That, that may well be the very best thing in that circumstance, but you've got to give that the consideration. That's mm. what an ethics requirement has of you. I think it's going to be one of those scenarios where the regulator comes out and tells... The industry, yet another one of those examples where the regular tells tells the industry where uh, where the where the boundaries are. Um, they're, they're doing work in that work in that area in the moment. Um, you've been really generous with your time, gentlemen. So um, pushing on to standard three, the final uh, uh, scenario three, the final standard, uh, and then we'll close it off. Uh, um, if a licensee is offered discounts by products, um, platforms, and funds. Um, for the end clients that compete against their own platforms and products but do not take up these discounts, essentially doing nothing to take up the discount offer that has been offered, what is the ethics around this? Um, it, it's kind of a, it's a bit riddly, um, you know, I'm happy to read it again, but just do you want to kind of repeat, um, Dean? Oh, oh, sorry, um, we're going to Michael first, right? So essentially we're saying um, uh, there's discounts offered by funds and platforms out there. Um, we have our own um, funds and platforms um, and we're not taking the discounts um, by the ones in the market offered. Therefore, I, I think what the reader is saying, therefore making our own platforms and, and funds more attractive. Is that your interpretation, Michael? How would you handle that? Yeah, yeah that's certainly my interpretation and, you know, I think, you know, through the, the dialogue that Dean's been giving us today and, and you know, that, the thought process that we have to go through. I mean, there's clearly a couple of values um, <laughs> that we question. And, and as Dean said before, you know, our licensees are not bound under this code. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they need to be considering, um, you know, the impact that that's having and the position that that would put um, an advisor, you know, uh, in by understanding that perhaps we could in fact have a better deal for our client um, but for whatever reason, the licensee is choosing not to. So, you know, certainly the whole, you know, honesty and fairness uh, values come forward. And, and then for me, you know, the, the best interest um, is, is certainly at, at the forefront of my thoughts to, to think, um, you know, and, and as an advisor, it, it would be, 
well, then now we need to, to go to the licensee and, and ask the questions of, well, why is this the case and, and what has what has brought about this decision and, and you know, really does put us in a tricky spot um, with our licensee. But again, it's, you know, it's, I think it will be, you know, the outcome is the strength to be able to, like we do with product providers, be able to say, well, that's actually not good enough or, or that's a, a crappy outcome. Let's let's adjust that. So it, it, for me, it certainly would put us in, in a very tricky position and uh, would certainly start to dent the confidence that you'd have with the people who are who are licensing you if, if you were to find that out uh, in, in any way, shape or form. Dean? Yeah, look, I think, I think this one, whilst it might look um, particularly complex, I think it's actually... I think it boils down to a couple of simple points. And Mark's, Mark's commentary is really spot on that, that this is really about um, the, dif- the difference between what a licensee's duties are under law and arguably ethically from, a, from an advisor. Um, there's no question that the advisor has duties in this scenario um, because their job is, to, is to, seek, to act in the best interest of their client. Where they become aware that their licensee is not helping them or, in fact, may well be acting against them being able to act in their best interests, then, again, the requirements are that the planner, the advisor is the one in position of power here or arguably um, no power but all responsibility to affect that conversation back to their licensee, um, which is what Michael's reflecting. You, know, you have a duty to go back to the licensee and say, frankly, I'm going to lose this business because you guys are being unethical or not allowing me to exercise my ethical duties. Um, the question of whether you act, though, whether you would act for the client, I think, is is that there's no suggestion, I think, uh, this could be, uh, I don't want to offer any sort of particular legal perspective on this, but there's no suggestion in the in the law that you need to give consideration to a hypothetical product. You know, there's enough problems dealing with real products <laughs> and, and being able to do some analyses of best interest in the context of real products. The idea that there is a hypothetical or a possible product that is available here for the client that would be better for them is not the duty of any participant in the marketplace. But if you know, if you are made aware that the licensee is acting against the interests of your client, that's a different relationship. That's a different responsibility. And it's a good one to perhaps finish in your scenarios because it brings us back to the point that this reform was always about elevating the advisor this reform was in the absence of, in a Corporations Act setting where the advisor has always been at the end of a chain. Um, this law was fundamentally about elevating the role of the advisor to be the professional principal in this conversation, to be that which that person which sits between the client and the vicissitudes of the financial services industry. Um, so taking that position on, taking up the full mantle of what that means to be the protector of the client from the financial services industry is a powerful professional duty. Um, and this is a this is an example that 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 puts that squarely in the hands of the advisor. Yeah, and uh, I think you're right. I think it's a great one to to, to end on. And uh, any closing remarks, Michael, on that? Look, I mean that comment that Dean just made. I, I've never never heard it uh, framed in that way. But you know, my role being the protector of the client, um, you know, from something that they they really don't understand and and really perhaps don't have the time or the uh, inclination to understand and that's why they're engaging with us. So I think that's a, just a fantastic way to, to think about, you know, what our role is uh, to the end consumer um, and, and just how important that role really is as well to, to make sure that we do 
provide that protection and, and give them, you know, the direction that they require. So, Dean, thanks for, uh, for sharing that insight. Uh, I think for me that certainly helped me to, uh, to frame, you know, what it is that, that we're, we're doing and you know, I think the important thing um, for us as, as practitioners is to continue to talk to each other. Um, you know, I think in business sometimes we're, we're cautious about that. We think we have to protect what we know, but, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty clear through today's discussion that as a collective we need to uh, come together and, and make sure that we're, we're, we're pushing in the direction that we want, uh, not that we're being forced to. Yeah. Um, in a lot of kind of ethics literature, there's the suggestion around ethical resilience or ethical skin. Uh, do you think that the advice advisors or the advice industry has uh, enough of a, an ethical skin or can that be developed and how quickly can that be developed? Well, to, to, to pick up the same sort of analogy, I, I like to use ethical muscle as, as opposed to skin. I, I do think um, that the advice community has been... Um, has not been allowed to build its muscle sufficiently well because of the structure of the industry. Because, and by the way, because of the structure of the law, I want to be absolutely clear, the, the law has facilitated the structure of the industry to arrive this way. This was not some sort of evilly intentioned construction. This was the purpose of the law as it was previously written, that this is the way industry would naturally um, lead to efficiencies. So that, you know, the fact that you seek efficiencies ultimately means something gets sacrificed along the way. And the advisor's independence of mind and independence of professional obligation have been part of that particular sacrifice. Um, this is absolutely a moment for ethical muscular building. Um, and that is that conversation that Mike's having about how do you collectivise around this? How do we build mm -hmm. the muscle together? Because it is a collective muscle. Mm -hmm. It isn't the fact that one advisor might be wholly ethical is actually quite irrelevant. Mm -hmm. um, the, the purpose of the law is how everybody becomes mm -hmm. more muscular and that, I mean that in the full strength of that word, including how we push back to other parts of the sector, how we engage in dialogue with, with government and regulators. That musculature is really vital. And, and it's, 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 it's great to see it beginning to be built, but there's no question that, that, that we've got a lot more muscle to build. Mm. And with that, uh, thank you, Dean and Michael. Uh, it's been a great conversation, so I appreciate uh, you both. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes.